So, anybody remember kind of the beginning of last week, how, how we started out? Pastor Renee opened up the series, kind of set the context for us, and talked about uh, the, the, what was going on with Paul, trying to encourage Timothy uh, in this church plant in Ephesus, and how Timothy was under a lot of pressure, because he was a new pastor, a, a, a young man. Um, he would have been probably somewhere... In, you know, in the late 30s, maybe early 40s, so he was considered a young man. And, um, and so he was pastoring this church in Ephesus. And any of the churches that were planted around the New Testament era after the resurrection, it would have been susceptible to a couple of things. It would have been susceptible to persecution. So that alone would have been challenging and difficult. And when you read Paul's letters to the different churches, his emphasis, his emphasis a lot has to do with endurance and perseverance and, and not giving in to pressure and standing firm and, and being in unity of the faith and standing firm against the attacks of the enemy. And, and then another theme that we'll see throughout the entire book of First Timothy and then when we go into, into Second Timothy, and you see this in, uh, in, in the other letters that Paul writes, the other main theme is the issue of false teaching, is the issue of false teachers coming into the church. And so that's going to be a continuing thing, and we're, we're going to focus on one of the false teachings that would have been alive and well during that day, too. And Pastor Nate kind of touched on it a little bit this last week. But just before we get into it, I just want to ask you a, a question. What, what, um, what would you think would be the priorities for, for, for the church, for our church, for any church, for any New Testament Protestant church? What would be something that we would prioritize? You can just start... Shouting out things. It's not that complicated. You guys know all the answers. Love. Leading people to Christ. Truth. Mission. Spread the gospel. Evangelism. Scripture. So, so preaching the word of God. Holding scripture high. Being obedient, being obedient to God's word. As a church, as a collective body, the, 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 the gathering, you know, we are the gathering of the called out ones. We've been called out by God. We've answered his call. We've repented and we've, we're following him. And so we seek to obey God in his word. That's, that's absolutely true. Anything else? Being an example. Accountability. Hey, you guys, none of you, not one of you, said what I'm going to be preaching about. I thought for sure how we're going to say it. All right. So that, is that it? Any other priorities? Salvation of the lost, yeah. Forgiveness, it's good. Pro, who, who said that? Ah, oh, hallelujah. Bless you, bless you, sister. Prayer. Prayer. Did you say it six times? I, I'm just, I'm deaf on this side tonight. <laughs> Prayer. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight is Prayer, prayer, it's, that's got to be one of the priorities of the church. And actually in, in chapter two, the apostle Paul says, first of all, then I urge you to do this. First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. So this, I mean, he said it, first of all, this is the first thing. I, if, if I'm, I'm going to encourage you about a lot of things, but I want to get this one in the premier encouragement, one of the first encouragements, first of all, I encourage you to pray. And so think about that. As a church, if we don't pray, if we're not engaged in prayer, just think about how weak we will be as a church. Prayer has to be the, 
the continual uh, devotion of our heart, that we're continually, when we gather here, we're praying. You know, our worship is prayer. Our worship is prayer. When when we are lifting our voices in worship, it is a prayer unto God because we are declaring to God who he is and we're thanking him for who he is and we're worshiping him. That, That is worship and prayer mixed together. And then whenever we leave the assembly of the called out ones, when we go about our daily lives, we incorporate prayer throughout our life. So prayer has to be a priority in our life because of our weaknesses, because of our struggles, because of the attacks of the enemy, because of, and in this context, because of the persecution, because of the false teaching that had come into the church. And so prayer has to be a priority. Paul is helping Timothy to set in order the, the priorities of the church in Ephesus. I just want to read this. This is 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. And this is what Timothy, this is what Paul is doing. This is what he's doing with Timothy here. This is verses 14 through 15. This sets the context for all the first Timothy, all of second Timothy. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you. I'm writing this letter to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress, or another word for that is foundation of the truth. So Paul is telling Timothy, I'm coming I want to come visit you, but if I delay, I've given you some instruction, and these are, these are my instructions. And so he's saying, paying close attention, because the church is called to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And so this is, a, this is, a, a, this is one of the false teachings that had crept into the church there, and this is kind of what was hindering. This is why I believe Paul encouraged them to pray. To pray for all people. And we're, and we're going to read through some more of that chapter 2 where he says to pray for all people. And here's one of the false teachings that, that came in. There was a mixture. A, a, a Jew, you know, Jews were getting saved. The, the, the primary people that were getting saved during the early church were, were Jews. Because the, the gospel started in Jerusalem. And then it spread throughout the region and throughout the area. And so it would have been a majority of Jews getting saved. And so, you know, the Jews were God's called out people. They were God's special people that God had his blessing upon their life. And so they came to realize post-resurrection, Jesus wasn't just our Messiah to be our earthly king. He was God in the flesh. He is to be worshipped and honored. And so they came to faith in Jesus Christ. But then they tried to mix Judaism and ceremonial law and customs with the gospel. And they tried, these false teachers came in and tried to say to these other Jews, that if you're going to be a Christian, a really good Christian, you have to still keep the Old Testament law. You have to still keep the ceremonial law and the customs that we have learned from our fathers. And so they even began to think because they were doing that, they were like this super elite Christian that was higher than all the other Christians. And that because they were God's special people that God revealed salvation to through Jesus Christ, then it amped up their spiritual pride and they didn't have a view. Listen, this is so important. They did not have a view for Gentile salvation. They did not have a view. And if you go into the book of Acts and you study into the book of Acts, it took a vision that, that Peter got to be able to see that the gospel was for everybody. It was for Gentiles a Gentile is a non-Jew. Anybody that's not Jewish is considered a Gentile. And so this was a false teaching that was in the church. And Paul is addressing that. And he's telling this church at Ephesus, first of all, if you're going to be a church, 
If you're really going to be a New Testament church, you have to get this right at the beginning that the gospel is for everybody. It's not just for you as a Jew. And it's not just for you as a super Jew because you think you're super spiritual because of all the rules and regulations that you're keeping. The gospel is for everybody. It has to be spread to all of the world. What's the great commission? Go ye into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So somehow, the message that Jesus gave them at his, before his ascension, after his resurrection, it, it got lost in translation. They forgot that part, making disciples of all nations. And so some false teachers crept in there preaching this type of false message. So you cannot be a church. It's impossible to be a church if you don't preach the gospel to everybody. The people you like, the people you don't like. The people who come in the door that don't have it all together. And the people that come in the door and think they have it all together. The people that don't smell good and the people that smell good. The people that don't dress like you, don't talk like you, don't look like you. It's for everybody, for everybody. So we cannot be a church unless we say everybody can come and hear the gospel message, right? It's fundamental to the gospel. Now it gets a little complicated whenever people come in that we don't really like or we struggle with. People who have lifestyles of sin that are challenging for us to handle. But we cannot be a church a church is not a church unless a church preaches the gospel and it is available for all to hear and to respond to. So this is why he's saying, first of all, so let, let's, let's go to the text and we'll read it and we're gonna talk about this prayer. This is, this is what I would call evangelistic prayer. He is setting, him, he's setting him in place and saying that evangelistic prayer, prayers for the lost, should be a priority for every church. First of all then, I urge that supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there, is no, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So this is, this is what we're gonna look at. We're gonna talk about evangelistic praying, evangelistic prayer. Why do we pray for the salvation of the lost? Why do we pray for the salvation of the lost? And I think it's, it's in this text here. Why do we do it? Why does Paul set that as a first of all priority? And I titled this message, Priority Number One. Priority Number One. Why is it priority number one for us as a church to pray for the salvation of the lost? Number one, and it's in the text in verses three and four. Number one, because it pleases the Lord. Let's, let's, let's read that in verses three and four. This is good. And you remember that, that first verse in chapter one and two? I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he says, this is good. What's good? The prayers, the supplications, the intercessions and the thanksgivings that have to be made for all people. This is good. And why is it good that we do that? Why is it good that we pray for the lost, that those, don't, that don't, those that don't, don't know God, that don't, haven't been saved? Because it, it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires 
all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We pray for the lost primarily because it pleases God, because it's good and it's pleasing in his sight, because this is the crux of why he sent Jesus, is so that all people could respond to the gospel message. This is his heart. God's heart is filled with compassion for the lost. You know, I think sometimes as Christians, you know, and I, I know who I'm speaking to. I know I'm speaking to Christians. We're Christians here tonight. This is Wednesday night. It's, it's, it's the Christian night. So I think in, in, in our Christian life, sometimes, you know, we know that to be true, right? We should pray for the lost. But I think we can just become so busy with our life and so distracted with Christian things and life groups and Bible studies and, and, and get-togethers and church and all the things that we do as Christians that it's almost like we just forget, oh yeah, I've got a truth that has changed my life and there are people all around me who don't know that truth. You know, I believe right now that we live in an unchurched nation. People think, oh, there's no way. Oh, I'm telling you. You go, into, you go into communities all around this city, all around this nation. You, you know, you, you would think we're in the Bible Belt. How can we have unchurched people? I'm telling you, there are people that live in my neighborhood. I know they're there. That, they, that their parents have given up on the church. And, and there, there are a lot of unchurched people. And then it's going to only get, it's going to only increase as kids that are my children age as they grow up because their parents are are increasingly not going to church they're not going to have a context of who Jesus is so a lot of times we think we've got to preach the gospel to unreached people and to do that we have to go to other countries and we still do it we are called to go into all the world that is the great commission and we do that here at living word we will always do that here but we don't have to go very far to reach unchurched people people who, who don't know Jesus so I just think we can lose sight that there are people all around us that have never even heard the gospel message that Jesus saved them, gave them an opportunity to respond to his work on the cross. God's heart is filled with compassion for the lost. Second Peter 3, 9 says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Matthew 9, 35 through 38 says this, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, I love this, and this is so, I just love this about Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, we're his disciples, listen to what Jesus says to us. The harvest, it's plentiful. Just, just, just look around you. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's so compelling, <laughs> so convicting. I just love that about Jesus, though. This is why it pleases the Lord that we pray for the lost, because he is filled with compassion when he sees people that are lost and helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. I just see that picture of Jesus. He sees a crowd, and the crowds that followed Jesus weren't like this crowd. There were no empty seats when Jesus showed up into town. 
This building seats 1,800. They had that and then probably double that, quadruple that. And he fed the multitude. We're going to read it on Sunday in John 6. He fed a multitude of 5,000 people, just men. They didn't even count the women and children. So you had six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand people at a time would follow. And it says there, it says that when he would see the multitudes... This is what I picture of Jesus when he sees the multitude. He's an infinite God. He's all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. He can look at an individual person and see exactly who they are, where they come from, the needs they're dealing with, the, the sin, the depression, the oppression, the sickness. He sees all their struggles instantly, and he sees that times 10,000 in a moment. You know, we would, cr- we would crumble under the weight of that revelation. But Jesus, when he sees that, he's filled with compassion for the people. And what is, what is his reaction when he's filled with compassion? He says, listen, my disciples, the harvest is plentiful. They're everywhere. There's people everywhere. I, they're everywhere. I see them right here. They're everywhere. But the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that the laborers would go out into the harvest. Matthew 23, this is one of my most favorite scriptures in the New Testament, you know, Matthew 23 is called the great woe section. And Jesus is condemning the scribes and the Pharisees, the hypocrites, the ones who, who were the ones who ultimately positioned Jesus to be killed and crucified. And he went after them. And when you read the Gospels, he's, try, he's always trying to get to two groups of people. He's trying to get the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews, to see who he is. To recognize that he's God. And he's trying to get these disciples, who I don't think half the time know why they're following him. Trying to get them to see wh- who he is. And they don't really get it. And even to the end, they don't get it. Everybody, everybody leaves. Except one woman. And so... And so you see Jesus at 20, in chapter 23 of Matthew. It says, it says that he, he just rebukes the scribes and Pharisees. It says that they're hypocrites, that they're a brood of vipers, that they, are, that, that, that they are whitewashed tombs, that they look good on the outside, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones. And then he gets to this point. He has just, he's just blasted them verse after verse. And he says this. His rebuke of them was birthed out of compassion And listen to what he says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. You kill those that come to you to bring you truth. He's saying, I'm a prophet, and I've come to you to bring you truth. And the prophets of your nation that have come over over the centuries, you've killed them, and you have not listened to them. And they've come, the prophets of old have come and testified of me. And you wouldn't listen. And I'm a prophet and I'm coming to bring you life, to bring you truth. And you're not listening. You kill the prophets. And you stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And what's that picture of? It's a picture of protection. Like he said there about being a, a, a like seeing the filled, filled with compassion for them like they were lost sheep without a shepherd. He wants to protect them, gather them under his wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. You know, that's the end result of rejection of God. It's, it's emptiness. It's just not what Jesus wants. He wants people to respond and to come and receive his love. So why do we pray for the salvation of the lost? Because it pleases God, pleases the Lord. 
It pleases the, the Lord when we reflect his character and heart. So, you know, one of the, one of the goals and one of the, one of the burdens and the, the joyful burden that we have as pastors, responsibility, burden is the wrong word, responsibility. One of the responsibilities we have as pastors is to help all of us through the teaching of God's word to come to maturity in Christ, to reflect the image of Christ. You know, in Ephesians 4, says this. It says that, that he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ till we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves of doctrine. But speaking the truth in love, grow up in every way into him who is the head, grow up into Christ. And so this is what we do because we, I need to, and we all need to, to grow into maturity. And that happens through the teaching, the relentless, continual teaching of God's word and seeing Jesus in all of his glory in the Old Testament when he's revealed in the Old Testament and in the gospels and in the letters to the churches. Jesus is a theme throughout scripture. When we relentlessly see Jesus in his heart and his compassion for the lost, it shapes us into his image. And so then we pray for the lost with compassion like our Lord does. And we care for the lost like our Lord does because we are growing up into maturity into him. And he's helping us, he's helping us see it that way, seeing through his eyes. So that's, that's the first reason why we pray for the lost because it pleases the Lord. What's the second reason why we pray for the lost? Let's go back to the text. It says, Verse five, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So we saw in the previous verses, it pleases the Lord that we should pray for the lost because he desires that all would be saved. But then then he says this, he says, but there's one God and only one mediator between that God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so we pray for the lost, number two, because there's only one God. We pray for the lost because there is only one God. Because there is only one mediator. You know, the prevailing idea in our culture is that there are many gods. Many gods. If you're from India, you, got, you can have 25,000 of them if you want. If you don't want to have a God and you want to be a God unto yourself, you be a God unto yourself. If you... If, if you, if you want to worship anything you want to worship and make it a God, you can do that. that that's the prevailing idea in our culture. This idea, this, this idea that there could be only one God is a foreign concept. And it's been a foreign concept for generations. This is not anything new in 21st century culture. This has constantly been the battle that Christians have, have faced. And so we preach the gospel, though. We pray for the lost because we believe that God's word is true. And God's word says there is only one God. If there were multiple gods, and there were multiple ways, as Oprah says, multiple ways to get to God, then hey, why, why are we preaching? Why preach? Doesn't matter. There's no point in it. There's no point in preaching. Why, why give our life to it? Why give our life to going to, to the ends of the world, to the jungles of, of where's, where, where's some jungles at? I was about to say jungles of Africa. Are there jungles in Africa? Okay, jungles of Africa. <laughs> so why, why, why go to the jungles of Africa? 
And why, why, why go to Albania where it's 90% Muslim like we went in the summer? Why do that if, if they're right too? They're right. So why waste our time? But the reason we do it is because we believe that God's word is true. We believe that the book we have gives us the way of salvation. And so we pray for the lost because we believe they're lost. We pray for the lost because we believe that God has given us his revelation and his truth that provides the only means of salvation. So what does God's word say about this? Matthew 7, 13 through 14 says, this is Jesus speaking, the the God of our, the God that we worship, the God that we follow. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are by it are many. And most translations will say most. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You know, this is a, this is a, this is a hard scripture right here. We don't really like to talk about it very often. But this is, this is true. Because the nature of the gospel is that it's exclusive. We, we, we don't say all roads lead to the same place. We say there's only one road, and there's only one gate, and there's only one way through the gate, and it's through who? It's through Jesus. That's what we preach. And so the reality is, according to Jesus, the Son of God, the one who resurrected on the third day, he said few people go through his gate. The majority of people reject. That's a reality because our message is difficult. Our message is not easy. This is just not a self-help religion. This is not just a prop you up religion where you just come and get a little Jesus and you'll have a little bit of, of a better life and we can help, we'll help you manage your mess. Come to Living Word Church and manage your mess. No, it's come to Living Word Church and die. You know, on Sunday behind that screen, there's gonna be water in that tank and Pastor Clyde Noel and Pastor Vern Trosclair back there, they're going to baptize 13 people who died. They died. They were buried with Christ. And the symbol, the symbol of their salvation is that we're going to pick them up out of that water. And that's going to be a, a sign of their resurrection. It's, it's, it's a symbol of what we do there. That's Christianity. It's a religion of dying and rising from the dead. It's not a, it's not a self-help. It's not come and get better. Come and have a better life. You can get that anywhere you want to get it. Anywhere. But we pray for the lost because we believe the lost are lost. John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pretty easy there. Not, not much interpretation. John 6, 35 says this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. We're going to talk about this on Sunday. Jesus being the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son. This is so beautiful. I love this. Everyone. This is our text here in Timothy. Everyone who looks on the Son. And when you look on the sun, what do you see? 
What do you see when you look on the sun? What did you see when you looked on the sun? Did you, did you, see, your, did you see that you could not stand in his presence in the state that you were in? Or did you, did you look on the sun and you thought, you know what? He's got some pretty good teachings. I'm going I'm to add him to my life. Everyone who looks on the sun and believes in him. What do we need to believe about, about the sun? That he was resurrected on the third day and that he's God. Everyone who looks on the sun and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. We pray for the lost because it pleases the Lord and reflects his heart. And we pray for the lost because we believe that God's word is true. Amen? Amen. Let's go back to the text. Verse 6. This is continuing on there. It says, well, let's, let's, go, back, let's go back to 5. Let's get, a, let's get a running start. Or let's go back a little further. Can you do that for me, Chuck? Okay. This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. In verse six, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Verse six, he gave himself as a ransom for all. So the third reason that we pray for the loss is because we know that the ransom that Jesus paid was sufficient to do the job he set out to do. He didn't fail. How do we know he didn't fail? Because you are new creations in Christ. The ransom he paid was sufficient because we are the proof of the resurrected life. We are the proof of the finished work of the cross. The ransom was sufficient because the gospel has never been stopped. As, as intense as the persecution was in the early church, they were, they, they, were, they were burning people upside down. Nero tried to extinguish Christianity by himself, and he, and, and he couldn't do it. Other men and tyrants and dictators throughout history have tried to stamp out Christianity, and it will never be stamped out. Persecution only amplifies Christianity because it purifies between the true and the false believer and the, and the true believers rise to the surface. And when the unregenerate see a true believer suffer well and pers- be persecuted well for Christ and do not compromise, they say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. They, there's something there. There's something true in that person's life. So the gospel has never been stopped. It's because lives are continually changed and transformed from the inside out. And we are proof that the ransom that was paid was sufficient. We have been bought back from slavery to sin, which led to spiritual death, and are now new creations in Christ. We have been made alive together with Christ. God's wrath fell on the innocent Son of God. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about Jesus. And it says in Isaiah 53, it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus with his wrath. And it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus with his wrath because he loved us. Because he took the crushing that we deserve because of our guilt, because of our sin. God's wrath fell on the innocent son of God, the wrath that was due us. Jesus became our substitute. 
His sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God. In 2 Corinthians 5, we'll we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. I'm I'm, going to read that scripture last. But because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God and took upon himself our punishment, when we, according to the book of Romans chapter 10, when we believe in our heart, and confessed with our mouth that Jesus is God, that he was raised from the dead, it says we shall be saved. And at that moment in time, when you confess Jesus as Lord, you are justified. Justified. And that word justified, to be justified before God, it means that, it means that the picture is, is if you were in a legal court, if you were in a courtroom, you were in a courtroom, and you were infinitely guilty as we were before Christ, and the judge looked at you, and you had no footing to stand on. You were guilty. But then Jesus stood up and he pushed you out the way and he said, I'm going to stand in their place. Give me the punishment, I'll take it. And then the judge says, okay, well, he's not guilty. You can go free. Jesus took our punishment. And then now we stand justified as if we've never sinned. Isn't that beautiful? Justification. I want to explain justification to you. So I need two volunteers. So I'm going to pick on, pick on a couple people. So I'm going to get Pastor Clyde to come up. And I'm going to get Pastor Troy to come up. You can come up. Pastor Troy. Pastor Troy, you don't have to come up. You have to come up. Unless you preset what we're going to say. Okay, well, you may not want to be up here. Oh, that's okay. Okay. So, here's an example of, just, of justification. So, which one of you wants to be Hitler? Hitler. 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 Okay, Hitler, you go over there. Okay, and now you be Jesus. All right. So, you get to go way over there. Go as far as you can go on, on, on the stage and still be seen. So, just keep going, Jesus. Keep going. Okay, so we got Hitler over here. Now, Hitler is really bad, right? When you think of Hitler, you think of the lowest of the low, don't you? You think of, I mean, you can't get any worse than Hitler. He exterminated millions of Jews and millions of other people that he just didn't like, and he thought he was better than everybody. You're a bad dude. And so when you think of ourself, where would we put ourselves in this pendulum? So here's, here's, the, here's the chasm. You got Hitler and you got Jesus. So you think there's... No way that Hitler is anywhere near Jesus. But where do, you, where do you think we would like to put ourselves before we're Christians? Probably, probably about where, right, right, right in the middle. If I could find middle ground, we'd say this is where we're at. We are right here. I'm not anywhere near Hitler because Hitler's Hitler. <laughs> and I know I'm not anywhere near Jesus because I know I'm Jesus is Jesus. But I don't think I'm like Hitler. Because what do we do? This is what we do before. We compare ourselves. So we, we look at our neighbor who's a terrible husband and cheats on his wife. And we, we look at our neighbor who has a filthy mouth. And we, we look at other people and we say, well, we're really not that bad. This is what we do before we're a Christian, hopefully. This is how we think. So this is what makes it difficult for people to come to faith in Jesus. Because they see the worst of the worst. And they see, well, hey, I'm pretty good. I just need a religion to help me kind of have a better marriage and kind of get, get through life halfway happy and not have to drown myself with alcohol, right? Just, just give me a good life. But until we get the revelation 
that I and you and everyone in this room and everyone that ever lived, me and Hitler, we're buddies. We're best friends. We hang out together. The heart that Hitler had to do what he did may have been exceptionally developed evil with evil. And I may not have had that type of development of, of evil, but the root of my heart is the same as Hitler. Because I'm a sinful man. And sin is sin. There are no categories of sin. So this is what justification does. This is what it means to be justified. It means that all of us who are just in the same position spiritually apart from Christ as Hitler was, Jesus comes. All right, Jesus, come on. We don't try to crawl our way back. Just stop about right there. This is what we think we have to do. We have to try to crawl our way to Jesus. But you remember the story of the prodigal son? What, what, did, what did the picture of the father do? It says he ran. Jesus bridged the gap. He bridged the gap. He closed that chasm up. And so Jesus comes all the way over here to us. It says no man comes into the father unless the spirit draws him first. And so the Holy Spirit, we hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit comes and Jesus comes and we respond in faith and I can't do what I would like to do because this is not Star Trek here. But the Bible says that when we, when we become Christians, it says that we become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So if I could make them come together, where Mr. Chuck and Mr. Clyde, you can't see a difference between them. And when you see Chuck, you see Jesus. And when you see Jesus, you see Chuck, the righteousness of, the righteousness of God in Christ. Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be justified. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. That is justification. We become together with Christ. We're one with Christ. And so whenever we stand before the, a holy God on, on judgment day, God doesn't look at us and, and say, show me, all the, show me how you crawled across that stage and lived really good and justified yourself. What he's looking for is he's looking for the blood of Jesus. And he's looking to see, did you by faith place your trust in the finished work of the cross? Have you been justified because of what Jesus did? And that's justification. And this is what scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 through 21. The ransom of God, the ransom, the price he paid was sufficient for our justification. And this is what happens when we're justified It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. That old man is gone. You know, you don't have two natures. You you do not have two natures. You have one new nature, right? If anyone is in Christ, in Christ, he is a new creation. In water baptism, what's the symbolism? The old man dies. Are there two men, two people rise up out of the water, or is there only one? It's only one. It's, it's a simple picture. One rises up. A new creation. The new creation rises up. Now that new creation lives in a flesh that has been trained by that old nature that just died. And so that new creation with that new spirit and, and that new heart has to retrain this flesh that you have. But you, you have one nature. It's in Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's dead. Behold, the new has come. And all of this stuff, all of this, this justification stuff, is from God. 
It's the only one that can justify. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So why do we pray for the lost? Because we are proof that his, his ransom was sufficient because we've been justified and we've been changed. He's given us that ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's good stuff. God's word is powerful. So in closing, we've got about just a couple minutes. Tell me about how you, tell me, now look, look, I'm not looking for a five minute testimony because we all want to go home. The kids have to go to school. But tell me, tell me about how you're a new creation. Tell me what God's done in you and just, just four or five seconds. I was this, but now I'm this. Talk to me. I used to be like this, but now I'm like this. I used to be bound in this, but now I'm... I, come on, people. People are okay. God's given you... You, you, used, to, you used to struggle with compassion... But now you're filled with compassion because you're a new creation in Christ. Anybody else? Amen. That's awesome. Anybody else? Sure. The word of God came alive. Amen. That's right. The, the unsaved cannot understand the word of God. It's actually impossible. They, they don't get it. Their eyes have to be enlightened to see who Jesus is. Anybody else? You have inner peace. So you used to not have peace, but now that you're justified, you're right with God, you have peace in your heart. Your motivation is different. Amen. Amen. That's, amen. Miss Miss Teresa, did you raise your hand? Amen. A friend that sicketh closer than a brother. Amen. Before Christ, you had no conviction, but after Christ, the Holy Spirit gives conviction of your life. Amen. Amen. That's exactly right. Yes, brother. But now but now you're like Jesus, right? You see when Jesus sees the crowd, what what happens? filled with compassion. And when you become a Christian, he builds his heart into you. It's powerful. Anybody else? I love that. It used to be a worry word, but now you have faith in him. That's, that's Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, take no thought about tomorrow, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Your father's going to take care of all that. But 
It's hard to do that when you're not a Christian. Because where, where, where are you placing your trust when you're not a Christian? But when, you, when you're a believer, you know God's got it. Amen. That's so good. It's, that's, that's, that's what the word of God does. When you're alive to the word of God, the Bible says in the book of Psalms that his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. We have clear purpose and clear direction. It's good. Anybody else? Constant guilt, but you feel redeemed and free. It's powerful. You know what? People, people in, in this life, they live with such guilt over past sins, mistakes and failures, regret. People commit suicide every day all around this world because they're filled with guilt and shame. And they need hope. Anybody else? Joy. Amen. Amen. If we could go all night. That's so good. So I said all that to say this is why we pray for the lost. You just think of all the things that were, that, that were just said. They were all the things that weren't said. And every one of you, if you said something, you could talk about what the cross did in your life, how he saved you and changed you. And that's why we pray for the lost because the gospel is true and the gospel changes lives. Amen? Father, I thank you for your word that is so powerful. Your ransom, the ransom that you paid for us, Jesus, was sufficient for our justification. That we, through faith in you, can become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And we can become new creations with new attitudes, new hearts, new desires. The old is gone. The worry, the fear, the doubt, the anxiety, the guilt, the shame in an instant can be gone. We thank you for that. God, and this is why, first of all, then, we pray. We pray. We petition. We intercede for all people, leaders and rulers and people in, all in between. God, every person, we pray for the lost that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. We thank you for this, Lord, and motivate us to do that, Lord, because we know that the harvest is plentiful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.